with his confidence. Enjoy Josh. Like, so my name is Josh, anyone who's never met me. I am the person who Jason lacks confidence in, but he gave me the microphone, and he's not even here, and I'm pretty sure they're busy this morning, so he can't even watch what I'm about to say. So I can pretty much do whatever I want. I'm kind of kidding. But um, So let's start by just praying together this morning. So Jesus, we just thank you so much for this day and for this opportunity to be here, God. We, we just thank you, Lord, that we live in a country where we can freely praise you. We live in a country where, where we can post online and do all these things that, that we love you and we can proclaim you, Lord, knowing that our brothers and sisters around the world don't have that same level of freedom and, and even support, knowing that there's so many people in this room that, that much more than 4% of our country proclaims faith in your name. So we just thank you so much for that. We thank you for the work that you're doing in Brazil and how you're using um, our pastors to uh, partner with that work. Lord, I pray that you would use our time this morning to bring honor and glory to your name. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're coming off of spring break. Everyone in the room has survived spring break. I'm guessing there's a lot of parents watching from home because they were just so spent from having their kids at home for a week. And can I get an amen? Anybody struggling this week with their kids at home? That's <laughs> people struggling. So we were actually supposed to go out of town this week. We were supposed to go and visit some friends in North Carolina. But our youngest, Everly, who's three, had a fever Saturday night, like a low-grade fever, and wasn't feeling super well on Sunday. So we decided to cancel the trip. They had a, a seven-month-old, our friends have a seven-month-old baby at home, so it just felt kind of irresponsible. Like, on the off chance that our kid is really sick, we bring our kid down and get their kid sick. Like, that just feels really unfair. So we kind of did the staycation thing. We went to Six Flags for a couple days, and we actually went to the Cape May Zoo. And I'm, I don't have a lot of hair, so when, when I was at Six Flags, my, my scalp got like kind of burnt, but I didn't realize it until we were at the zoo. And I normally do wear a hat. But I'm like, oh, I'm not going to wear a hat today. So now I'm a proud owner of this Cape May County Zoo hat because, so yeah, we really did like the staycation thing. We really were like tourists in our hometown, had a lot of fun, did the whole thing. But has there ever been a point in your life where you saw some kind of warning sign and you blew past it or avoided it or, or ignored it, and maybe you or somebody else had to pay the price for that. Our, our kid being somewhat sick was sort of a warning sign for us. We heeded that. We stayed ourselves home. Um, so here's some examples of some warning signs. Now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands because I've lived in New Jersey now for seven years, and I know that none of you yield to this sign. I know that no one pays attention. This sign, like when it's there, it's almost like it's invisible because nobody does it. So Pastor Jason explained this a few weeks ago as a sermon illustration also. So a yield sign means when one car is going here, the car that's coming this way is supposed to stop. They're actually supposed to stop moving so this one can keep moving. They're not supposed to both keep moving at the same time. So, so this causes many car accidents because nobody stops, so the cars just crash into each other. So sometimes we avoid this warning sign and we pay a price for it. Another warning sign, love this, it says keep out unstable cliff. So this is opposed to the stable cliffs in the world. This is unstable. And you see, this is an example of a person who did not heed the warning sign and is now falling into this glorious body of water. Uh, so another warning sign that we will sometimes see is trespassers will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. 
I remember one time, I grew up in Bushkill, Pennsylvania, so like the backwoods of the world, and one of, some, me and a couple friends were walking around, and we didn't know we were on somebody else's property. We saw this sign that was like knocked over, and we were like, oh, what does this sign say? We picked it up, and that's what it said, so we ran. We're like 10 years old. We're like, I don't want to get shot, and I certainly don't want to get shot again. And another warning sign uh, among these, this is my favorite one. Um, so this is in the White Mountain National Forest, which is up in um, the state of New Hampshire, and this sign says stop the area ahead has the worst weather in America a little bit dramatic many have died there from exposure gets even more dramatic even in the summer so not just the winter time but also in the summer turn back now if the weather is bad so quickly I want to share a story with you um, I was probably 22, 23 years old and went for a hike in the, in the month of January. If anyone knows what New Hampshire is like and the month of January, it is very cold. There are probably feet of snow on the ground. And we're young guys, and there was like five of us, and we were very dumb. So we saw this sign, right? And, and I, don't, I didn't include a picture of it, but we every, when we saw this sign, we're like, Haha, that's so funny, let's take a picture in front of it and then keep going. So um, so we were very arrogant. We blew right past it. So long story short, we got separated from each other. So there's three of us and two other guys. They kind of walked off the path because there was so much snow coming down. You couldn't see where you were going. Almost walked off a cliff. Both, all of us could have died. It was very irresponsible, something that I wouldn't do again, um, especially now having kids. So, <laughs> so at first, it's funny, right? Like when you go past the yield sign, when you see the unstable cliff sign, when we see the worst weather in America, it's like kind of fun and funny, and we're feeling full of ourselves. Like, we can do this because we're awesome, and let's take a selfie in front of this sign, and then we're going to brave the elements. But it does get scary, you know? So like we're hiking, and we, when we turned around to come back, because the wind was kind of at our backs on the way up, we turned around to come back down the hill, down the mountain. It was like little pebbles, like pelting me in the chest, and almost, the wind almost like knocking me over. Definitely the scariest moment of my life. And I really, like seriously, we could have died. Like I'm not exaggerating and not, not overselling it by saying that. And I would have paid for it, but I, got to, I would get to go to heaven. So I would kind of be winning in that arrangement. But my family would suffer and those around me would suffer. So there are times in life where we avoid a warning sign and we have to pay the price for it in the end. So another way of thinking of this is that we're all running towards something. Right? We're, all, we're all working towards something. We're all running towards something in life. And the question I want to ask to consider as we get started this morning is, is the finish line you're currently running towards right now where you actually want to end up? If your life continued in the current direction you're going in for the rest of your life, would you be pleased with the outcome of that? If your kids followed in your footsteps of where you are or people who look up to you, would you be okay if they ended up where you are. And I want us to just think about that. It's a very humbling statement. And I think humility is something that's extremely important. We'll get very deep into that this morning. Um, so our, our big idea for today comes from the Bible verse that Ellie read um, in between a few songs. And the big idea is that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. There are tons of Bible verses that talk about pride and humility. And I'm just going to read a few of those, um, definitely not all of them. If you Google Bible verses on pride, there's probably literally hundreds. Um, so Proverbs 11 verse 2 says, when the pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. 
Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Philippians 2, verse 3, do not do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Luke 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exhausted. James 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And the last one I'll read for, for right now is Matthew 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So a question we have to ask ourselves is, why does God oppose the proud? Why is that necessary? Why would he do that? Because I think a lot of times when we think about God in our culture, we think of God as like this really like grumpy, angry, cosmic buzzkill, like sitting somewhere in the sky that just doesn't want us to have any fun, right? He's just, he's so full of himself and he just doesn't want us to feel good about ourselves. So that's why he doesn't like it when we're proud, when we're prideful or when we're proud. But the question I have to ask is, have you ever interacted with someone who's really prideful? Like who you consider like conceited or kind of full of themselves? What is that experience like for you? Miserable, right? Like if someone is really, like if I stood up here and was like, guys, I just want to tell you how great I am because I'm so awesome and everything about me is amazing, every single person in this room would tune out immediately. Like no questions asked. Probably everyone would just walk out and leave because nobody wants to hear that. Nobody really cares, right? Like if I'm so full of myself, it gives you no room to appreciate me because I'm appreciating over-appreciating myself. And we see, too, in our world, right? Like, look around us in our personal relationships and globally what arrogance and pride can do and how destructive it can be to our relationships with each other and ultimately to our relationship with God. I think that's just helpful. It was really helpful for me as I was considering this to think about that. Like, why is it that God opposes the proud? And I think the reason is because God really prioritizes relationships and pride really eats away at relationships. And so pride, to me, again, like pride and selfishness kind of go hand in hand because you're so obsessed with yourself. You're so prideful. Um, so a lesson that someone taught me is, and I'll ask this question, so what is the opposite of love? Anybody? A lot of people would say hate. Um, that's, there's a few answers given, but Krista, who was in the same Bible study that I was in when Pastor Joe from Bayside Chapel taught us, that the opposite of love is actually selfishness because love is to be selfless. Love is to sacrifice for others. Love is to give to others. So when we're selfish, that is when we are opposing love. That's when we are on the opposite side of love. So I want to look, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 4, and he tells us a story of um, this guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, if you've been at this church for the past couple months, Pastor Jason preached a sermon um, on this king a few months ago. And if you've kind of grown up in church, you probably might know King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, from, um, you know, he throws the guys in the fiery furnace and that whole thing. So this is that same king, and, and we'll pick up in verse 28, and it says, this is Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So we'll pause here for a second because it starts with at the end of 12 months. And of course, since we're starting with that, no one in the room is knowing what happened 12 months earlier. So, so quick backstory: If you read all of Daniel chapter 4, you'll see that King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And in the dream, he sees a big tall tree reaching to the heavens that can be seen around the world. But then the tree gets chopped down and only its roots are left in the ground. 
down and he's very confused by this. He asks everyone in his kingdom if they can tell him what this dream might mean. Finally, he asks Daniel, Daniel, what does this dream mean? And Daniel kind of says to him, he's like, hey, listen, you're not going to want to hear this, but that tree is you because your kingdom is growing and growing and growing. But in your arrogance, God is going to chop you down and the roots are left because after a time, God will restore you. So, so I was talking earlier about warning signs, and that's, how th- that's where that ties in for this morning. Because 12 months earlier, he was given this warning sign. He was given this dream, and, and he could have turned from his wicked, evil, arrogant ways and maybe, maybe kind of pushed off the sentence. Um, so our big idea, like we talked about so far, is that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And one of the things we can do in humility is to pay attention to the warning signs, to, to think about how avoiding those warning signs will not only negatively impact ourselves but also our relationships with others and ultimately with God. So we're going to read um, just quickly verse 27 of Daniel chapter 4, um, which is just before the passage that we're picking up at. So we're reading our, our text for today is Daniel 4, 28 to 37, but I think verse 27 is helpful in giving us a greater level of understanding. So kind of the picture of what's happening here. So Daniel explains the dream, and, and this is kind of how he, he caps off the explanation of what the dream says. So he says to, to the king, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So as far as I know, no one in this room is a king. So in that regard, we cannot relate to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a ruler. He has great authority. But I think I know that something we can all relate to is as Christians, we can all grow in the areas of practicing righteousness. Can I get an amen? Anyone in here perfect at practicing righteousness? Pretty sure that the Bible says that that's impossible, so probably not. And we can also all grow in the area of showing mercy to the oppressed. And can I get an amen to that as well? So this king is called to grow in these areas, and he's told if you don't grow in these areas, you're going to face significant consequences. Um, So let's, uh, oh, oh, I wanted to pick up this real quick. So 20 years earlier is, you know, this fiery furnace story at the very beginning of Daniel chapter four. So King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue of himself and tells everyone that they have to bow down and praise it. Very full of himself. And there's these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to praise our God instead. We're not going to bow before this image of anyone other than God. And so he throws them in the fire They end up surviving. This King Nebuchadnezzar ends up praising God. If you read the beginning of Daniel chapter 4, he says, oh, great and mighty is your God, and praise be to him, and all this stuff. So that's 20 years before all of this. But what we know, because what I know for myself is I am forgetful. Anybody else forgetful? If I don't write it down, it ain't happening. If it's not on the grocery list, it's not in the cart. I am forgetful. And this king is very forgetful too. God taught him a lesson 20 years ago, and here he is kind of old dog, same trick, like same arrogance, same thing. Like, and God is saying, okay, like I tried to teach you once by saving people from your fire. Now I'm going to have to teach you again. So let's continue uh, in verse 29. So we, we have so far this dream that takes place 12 months ago. And so far, all we know is that we're 12 months later and he's walking on the roof of the palace. Not necessarily anything explicitly wrong with that, but we'll continue in verse 29. So it says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the the royal palace of Babylon. 
And the king answered and said, this is where we uh, find some trouble. He said, is, th- is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Does this sound like somebody you'd want to be friends with? Not a chance. He sounds like a total jerk. He literally says, for the royal residence, for the glory of my majesty. Like, who says that anyway? Like, so weird to say that. But (laughs) clearly, this is a person who forgot about the warning sign. The warning sign said that the 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 tree will go tall and strong and will reach to the heavens and everyone will see it and it will be great, but then it's going to get chopped down. To me, as I'm reading this, it almost feels like he he kind of felt like or thought that he could outrun or outgrow God, that he could grow so strong that God wouldn't be able to chop him down. You know, he's in, a, he's in a group of people. It might be people that he's giving a tour of the palace to, or it might be just some of his, like, loyal subjects or whatever like that. And he's just, he's just blabbing off about how amazing he is. It's interesting, too, because he says, this kingdom that I have built. And if you look at the history books, King Nebuchadnezzar took over the kingdom of Babylon. He didn't actually build it. He did fortify it. You know, he, he gets credit for the hanging gardens of Babylon, and the, and the military did grow significantly under his rule. But even in that, there's this this very much of bravado here, like this arrogance that's so intense that he can't even see things clearly. He can't even see that, like he says, I have built Babylon, which is not even the truth. It's not even what had taken place. So here we see a significant desire for power. And and so what we're talking about today is this idea of power and this idea of being obsessed with yourself. And, And the problem isn't power, but it is the obsession with power. So I, in my head, like I'm a very logical person. So I asked the question, like, where does that desire come from? And we actually have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to see where this desire in ourselves for power comes from. So Genesis 1 verse 26 says, um, this is at the creation of mankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God creates us in his own image. And is there a more powerful being or creature than God himself? No, there's not. God is the most powerful thing, and and we are made in the image and in the likeness of God. So there is some element that we, we do have some amount of power, and this verse goes on to say, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth. So God not only creates us in his image, of having power, but then he gives us power. Dominion is like ultimate authority, that no one can question someone's dominion. They have it. It's it's unshakable. And so God has given us dominion over the earth. So it makes sense that we desire power. It makes sense that we can maintain power. But the problem is when it becomes our obsession. The problem is when we want everyone, again, like the glory of, you know, if I'm standing up here, like the glory of my majesty, and I'm so amazing, that's when it really becomes problematic, which again, it's not only problematic because God doesn't like it or he's this buzzkill kind of God. It's problematic because God prioritizes relationships and arrogance and pride hinders relationships. So my plan as I was reading through this, right, I'm reading through this, the scripture, reading through commentaries, really studying, um, studying this passage. And my original plan was to, to preach on, you know, we're in this series on idols, putting things before God. And, and, um, and my original plan was to preach on the idol of pride or of power. 
Um, because in that, I can kind of look at Nebuchadnezzar, and again, like, I'm not a king, I don't have all this power, and I'm, I might be a little bit arrogant at times, but I'm definitely not full of myself to his extent. So in that regard, I can look at him and say, I'm nothing like him. I'm nothing like this guy. He's a total jerk. I want nothing to do with him. Um, but then, of course, through um, not only studying and, and kind of applying my brain, but really praying and applying my spirit to this passage of Scripture, God convicted me to realize that it goes much deeper than just the ideas of power. It goes to the point of self, that he was prioritizing himself over those around him, and he was ignoring the warning signs of God because he was so obsessed or so interested in his own idea of how things should go. And in that regard, I do have to humbly admit that I'm a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than I would like to like to say out loud in front of a group of people. And I think if we all looked in the mirror and gave a really honest self-assessment, we'd all say that we're at least a little bit like King Nebuchadnezzar. I think we'd all say that there's less, there's there's things in him that we don't like because we see it in ourselves. We all have so much room to grow, and that's the beauty of the Christian faith, that we're not saying that we've arrived or that we're perfect. We're admitting and acknowledging that we have so much room to grow. One of our values at Wellspring Church is, is daily surrender, and a question that we ask ourselves is, how can I pursue Christ-likeness today? Jesus Christ being the perfect example. We celebrated Easter last year where Jesus, last year, last week, Come on, keep up. Um, yeah, <laughs> working out, working out. <laughs> so last week we celebrated Easter. We're, we're celebrating that Jesus came from heaven and sacrificed his life. What could be a more selfless act than to die for somebody who really doesn't deserve it? So Jesus is the perfect example of humility, the perfect example of selflessness. And we can all ask that question. How can we be more like Jesus in our lives today and right now. So obviously, Nebuchadnezzar was very obsessed with himself. He was only pursuing his own glory, his own kingdom, his own worth. And something I've seen in my life and definitely in the lives of others is that if we are always pursuing more, like if it's more power or more money or more approval or something like that, fill in the blank of we're pursuing more blank, whatever it is that you or anyone could pursue and really long and yearn for, that if I just had that one more thing, then I'd be satisfied. Well, the problem is you'll be feeling left empty for your whole life. Because if we, we see people who are rich, right? We see people who have everything that we could ever ask for. And how many of those people get divorces and kill themselves? And their life is not satisfying. On the surface, it looks so amazing. But in the end, it's not. Versus if we live in an endless pursuit of Christ and being like him and living our lives with him, what we find, Jesus' words himself says that what we will find is life and life to the fullest. So I want to tell a quick story. Um, I'm a storyteller, so I could probably be up here for 20 minutes telling the story. But um, I want to tell a story of a time that, that someone hurt me and did something to me. So what, what I want to pause and say first is, I'm not going to say this person's name. It's not a gossip fest. And I don't even want you to really think so much about what this person did because what I want to focus on was my poor reaction to what this person did. So, so the, the, I, I, there's someone in my life that I'm in relationship with who about a year ago they lied to me and it really hurt, okay? So that's, that's the beginning of this story. And I don't want you to focus on that. Don't think about who was it and what did they do and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really matter for this right now. What I want you to focus on is this. My reaction to them was horrible. 
I was resentful to them. I, I said with my lips, because, you know, when someone lies and then you catch them, they'll say, I'm sorry. And I said with my lips, I forgive you. But in my heart, that wasn't true. I held on to bitterness and I held on to feeling hurt and I held on to feeling like this person owed me something. And do you see how dysfunctional that is? A guy named Timothy Keller, who's a pastor up in New York, um, this is a quick a quote from one of his books. He says, when people say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, they mean they have failed an idol whose approval is more important than God's. In a similar way, when God, like, so this person who, who sinned against me, who lied to me, God chooses to forgive them, right? Can I get an amen? God chooses to forgive them. So, so when God chooses to forgive and I do not, I make myself God. I put myself over him and in his place, and I call him a liar because I say, God, you extend forgiveness, but I'm not going to do that. And I make myself in my own life and in my own heart seem as though I am more important than God himself. And again, we can see how dysfunctional this can be. Earlier, I was talking about in Genesis that, that God made us to be like him, but he didn't make us to be him. So when I withhold forgiveness, and this is just one small example, but when I withhold forgiveness to someone who's hurt me, I'm trying to be God. And the very opposite is that when I extend forgiveness, that is when I'm putting myself in the proper place of being like God who offers forgiveness. So we've seen that this King Nebuchadnezzar is given this warning sign, and God says, turn from your ways, pursue righteousness, show mercy to the oppressed. We see pretty clearly already that he hasn't done that because he's standing saying, look how amazing I am. I'm so great, the glory of my majesty. Let's continue reading in verse 31 um, to see how the story continues. So while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time, or seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, catch that, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So the dream came to be. Everything that God said he would do, he did. We can trust that God is faithful. We can trust that when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. We can trust that when God says he's never going to leave us or forsake us, he won't. One of the, my kids call me Dado. My, our two-year-old, our, our five-year-old, when she was two, started that, and we thought it was funny, so we kept with it. Now our kids are three and five, and we still kind of try to reinforce that. So, um, so I always say to my kids, when Dado says he's going to do something, he's going to, and I want them to finish, do it. I want them to understand that I'm reliable and consistent and trustworthy. And if I say that I'm going to show up for my kids, then I want them to trust I'm going to do that. And on the same side, if I say if you do that, you're going to go to timeout. I want them to understand if you do it, you're going to timeout. And if I want my kids to see that I'm consistent, how much more important is it us for, to see God as consistent? And truly, if I, my kids can see me as consistent and I'm up and down and back and forth and sideways, how much more can we trust the consistency of God? 
One of the things that I love, so um, it says in seven periods of time, I don't know why it's phrased like that, seven years. Um, so if we look at the history books, we see that the years between 582 B.C. and 575, so you know the B.C. thing counts down, so 582 to 575, if you look at the history books, they're very clear on the accomplishments of King Nebuchadnezzar, but those seven years are strangely quiet about like accomplishments or wars or battles, and so we believe that to be the exact time frame that he was driven away from his kingdom. Uh, and I always love when, when we see something that's written in the Bible, and we kind of see it confirmed by people who don't even mean to be confirming it. Like they, they're not doing that on purpose and looking to confirm, but like if you look, you know, I found that very interesting that the, the history books seem to be very quiet in that time frame. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar was very proud, very arrogant, and very full of himself. He was given a warning. He was told by God, this is how you should live. Live a righteous life where you see others as more important than yourselves, where you show mercy to those who are suffering. King Nebuchadnezzar was known as a king who was ruthless. He would put people in jail for the smallest thing and just leave them there for their whole life. Or he would kill people for the smallest thing. He was so ruthless and wicked. And God said, turn from that. That's not how you should be living. That's not how anyone should be living. And so God says he's going to do something. And I love this word immediately. It's amazing how, you know, sometimes God makes us wait, but sometimes he shows up immediately. And this is a thing where God promised he was going to do it. And he came and showed up and did it. It wasn't like, you know, the warning sign was already there 12 months ago. He already had 12 months to turn it around and didn't. So now, all right, all right, King Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're, this is the glory of your majesty? Okay. So he goes from a king sitting on a throne to living amongst ox. And what's so interesting this here too is that if he's eating grass with oxen, what is more powerful of a being, an ox or a human being? An ox could totally tear this guy apart. So he would have to really be eating the scraps of what the ox left behind. So he goes from, if we look at this, he goes from being in the sight of human beings like almost like more than a man. Like if you think of a king, and so, you know, he has this great army. He has this great palace, like almost more than a human. Like the people of the day probably would have seen him as almost godlike. It goes from being more than a man to really less than human. Like from, from up on the top of the palace to below even the animals. And can you imagine how humbling that would have been for him? And we see that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So we've, we have so far to pay attention to the warning signs, and this is so important. We have, to, we have to see this this morning. The consistency of God ought to be trusted. God said he was going to do it, and he showed up, and he did it. Let's continue to read in verse 34. Um, we'll read 34 to 37 to see how this story comes to an end and concludes. So verse 34 starts with says, at the end of the days, so at the end of, of the seven-year period of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, you can catch that for a second, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He finally learned his lesson. And do you see that it, it was, so as, an, as someone who's eating grass, he's staring at the ground. He's so focused on what's directly in front of him that he can't see the world or himself or life clearly. And it's when he turned his eyes to heaven, when he looked beyond himself to see God, that his reason was restored to him. He was humbled to the fullest extent, but then also exalted. We see that, that not only did God restore his kingdom to him, but it says even more greatness was added to me. And what I love is that, that this idea of his own greatness is sandwiched in between. So he says, I looked to heaven and I praised God. Then he looks forward and says, now I have my kingdom and my counselors are coming back to me and everything's coming back. And then he looks back to heaven and says, but God, you are greater. So it's amazing because it, it's not a matter of power and it's not even a matter of self. God loves us and wants us to love ourselves. God made us and wants us to care for ourselves. It's not about power because God from the beginning designed us to have power and to have dominion over the world. So it's not the, the possession of power and it's not the use of power. It's the obsession with it. Because he even acknowledges, look, my, you know, he, he says, my kingdom was restored and my majesty. He starts using that language again. And when I was first reading this, I'm like, oh, man, here we go again. Like, clearly this guy doesn't get it yet. He still doesn't get it. But if you read the whole thing, this whole section, you see that he starts with, I praised God. And then he does say, yeah, like, my kingdom's pretty great. He does look at what he has in front of him. And that's all right. When we look at our, when we look at, you know, if you're the CEO of a company, it's all right to look at your company and say, okay, I'm in charge here. That's okay. Like you're, you're, the, you're in charge of your parents. That's okay. That's not inherently a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it becomes your obsession, when it becomes a need for more. But he sandwiches that in between praising God, acknowledging his current reality of power, and going right back to praising God. I love how this is phrased. And he's, this is the king who's so arrogant, the glory of my majesty. And he says, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. So for us, would we rather be under the king before that seven years or after? After, yeah, 100% for me too. So because before he was so full of himself, he's so obsessed with himself that he probably has no value in other people. That's why he's just killing people left and right, throwing people in jail. He has no value for anyone else's life but his own. And after this, we could say he was more humble. You know, God called him to then show mercy to the oppressed. We can kind of imply here, we don't see it written, but we can kind of imply that he probably learned his lesson there too. That after his own suffering, that he would be more compassionate, that he would be more gracious, more patient, more understanding. It's oftentimes in times of struggle and in trial that we learn lessons about humility and patience and grace. So a story that I've told before, just kind of quickly this morning. So um, on January 1st of 2018, my wife and I walked into our, our house that we, we owned um, with our one-year-old child and found that a pipe had burst, frozen and burst in our house and pretty much destroyed everything we owned. Um, and at that time, 
Um, I was pretty mad at God, if I'm being really honest. And, I, you know, because I, I had this feeling in my gut, like, seriously, like, we give to the church and we serve God and we do all these great things. And, like, you know, it was, it was this, like, and this is how you repay me? Like, this is what I get for all of that? And, and it's interesting because for me to be upset, right, like, you walk into your house. We have a child. We, we have this life we're trying to build for ourselves. And our house flooded. Where I'm allowed to be upset about that, right? Like, I'm allowed to be angry about that or upset or frustrated, but being mad at God is extremely displaced. God didn't flood my house. He can teach me things through that experience, but it wasn't his fault, especially because there was a shutoff for that pipe that burst, which I didn't know about beforehand, that there was a shutoff that if I turned it off, then it wouldn't have burst. So I really <laughs> should be mad at myself more than anything. <laughs> but my wife is in the front row laughing at me for that. Um, <laughs> so... So we see that in the beginning of the story that he's ultimately, King Nebuchadnezzar is rejecting God. And, and to me, what, was, what is seen through this story is that rejecting God leads to madness. He goes absolutely insane. He's living with the animals and eating grass and doing all this, this wild stuff. Re he rejected God and it led to a state of madness. When he praises God, though, it leads to a state of, in his life of gladness. So we have that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. We've covered the reasons why pride can be so destructive in our life for relationships and everything else. So we should pay attention to the warning signs through scripture and life around us. The consistency of God ought to be trusted. And finally, we see that it is reasonable to give God praise. If I can say that again, it is reasonable to give God praise. In a state of, of rational thinking, we can look at God and tell him, you are worthy of our praise. So I was talking to Pastor Jason a few weeks ago in preparation of this morning. And I said, I was like, you know, I, I feel pretty good about the sermon and what I have prepared so far. But the I just can't find anything yet that clicks for like a challenge. Like how do we apply this to our life and what do we do with it? Um, so, so Pastor Jason told me something that Pastor Graham encouraged him to do in a time of life where he was struggling with some things. And that's what I want to challenge you with this morning. It's to pray only prayers of praise for a whole week. So take a full week, the next seven days. And if you want to write things down or however you want to engage with this or do this, that you would only pray prayers of praise, that you wouldn't ask God for anything, you wouldn't tell God to do anything, that there would only be out of your mouth prayer, prayers that say, God, I love you, and think about the attributes of God and consider them and, and engage with him around them and show gratitude and praise to him for the things that he's done in your life and the ways that you've seen his spirit move in your life. So I really want us to encourage us to see that, that it's when Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven is when his reason was restored to him. And for us as well, when we lift our eyes to heaven, we can see life for what it really is supposed to be. We're not so obsessed with what's right in front of us that we can't see the bigger picture. So if this week as a church, we can take a full week and praise the Lord in our prayers. I can't wait to see what God will do through that. So we're going to sing one final song, and it's called Worthy, because he is worthy of our praise. So let's stand and sing together.